Oh yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. Today's show is sponsored by Ringmaster on a mission to launch B2B podcasts that create relationships, generate revenue, and drive growth. Ringmasterlive.com. Bam. All right, there it is. Man, I'm excited for this one. This is going to be a good one. So I can't wait to dive into the myth on this one. I can't wait to talk through this. I can't wait to learn from this speaker, this guest. He, Who is he? He is a speaker. He's an entrepreneur, a, a thought leader in the marketing space. Uh, but one of those ones where you, it's like a North Star in the sky. And you, when, when this is directing you in one direction, you're like, I'm going this way. And you, and you can orient your entire marketing to it. Um, digital marketing, mastermind decades of experience in paid media, performance, creative, data-driven optimization. We're going to get into that as well. He's helped hundreds of those big brands you've probably heard of, things like Gong and Amazon and, and a bunch of other uh, companies have been backed and are on like a growth trajectory. So I can't wait to get into it. Also hosts a podcast, the Three Minute Marketing Podcast, which you should check out. Co-founder and chief growth officer at Web Mechanics, Chris Mechanic, welcome to the show. Thank you, Casey. Thank you for that uh, warm introduction, man. I'm excited yeah. to be here too. You know, just copy that and make that your your wake up in the morning, your alarm clock. You know? <laughs> Ladies right. and gentlemen, positive you know? affirmation. I'll lay in <laughs> some audience. Uh, totally applause totally. in the background. So I can't wait to get into this. Let's smash some myths. So let me hand you this thing. It's heavy, but I know you work out. Ugh. Okay, here you go. Nice. You want to grab that? Got here it. Here it is. Okay. All right, here we Take go. Thor's hammer, smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Set the record straight once and for all. I'm really holding this hammer, all by right, the yeah, way. You are. And cost per lead, ladies and gentlemen, is a useless metric. Boom. Myth busted. Man, you're shattering people's worlds. People Myth are either like, busted. I can't handle this, and they're tuning out, or they're like, what did he just say? So cost per lead is a useless metric? Cost per lead is a useless metric, yes. Damn. When Tim, a metric becomes me a target, when a metric becomes a target, it becomes useless. Because I can get you you know, a bunch of shit leads, but that's not what you really want. So having been in this world for a long time, we've bought media in a lot of different ways, basically every single way that you can think of it. And I promise you that if you can transcend and elevate your stack to a point where you're literally bidding on customers instead of on clicks or impressions or leads and you're, and you're measuring your programs that way, man, that, that is the, uh, that is the holy grail right there. That is the holy grail that complements the hammer so beautifully. So, man, th uh, that is the dream. And it sounds like we've started we started out back in the day looking for impressions. And we know how useless that can be. Some people oh, yeah. are still obsessed with those. And we moved them forward to getting leads and then cost per leads and all these other stats. But it sounds like we don't have to be stuck in the 90s, you know, uh, with our, our clothes and our TV shows and our marketing strategies. We should be looking to bidding on customers based on the fact that they're going to turn into, you know, bidding on prospects based on the fact they're turning into customers. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it, and it's understandable why that's the case. Cause if you think about it, like going back to the nineties or even the early two thousands, 
it was kind of revolutionary to be able to measure cost per lead. You know, if you think about like the pre-internet days of advertising, measurement was way more difficult. So there was a time where bidding and measuring on cost per lead was actually a pretty cutting edge strategy. Uh, but at this point, we're in the age of the algorithms. We're in the age of the walled gardens. You know, most, most spend, the walled gardens is, you know, the Google, Facebook, Amazon, basically. Uh, basically. Uh, and most of that spend is happening there. And the algorithms that are controlling the ad serving have access to unfathomable amounts of data. So to think that you can sit there as a lowly human, right? And, right. and manually beat them in optimization over the long term, It's like, I don't know, uh, what's the name of that thing where there's the manual and he's, uh, it's like a myth or a fable where the you know, the manual guy who's building the train tracks, like thinks that he can beat the machine, but the machine ultimately prevails, but he puts up a good fight. Oh, I can't no. think of the name of the story, Sounds, but anyway, that, it's like some sex science fiction the machines. Or? It's like, if you're not cuddling up and cozying up with the machines right now, then you're falling behind because you're at a disadvantage. Right. Right. Yeah. Such a huge point, right? If, if the algorithms in the walled gardens of the Facebooks and Googles, have access to all this information. If unless you've built some, you know, zero stage, you know, neutron computer that also can analyze and has access to all that data, you're gonna be. I mean, it kind of reminds me when I thought I could play poker, but really yeah. it was like, ooh, I have a good hand. Let's pretend to have a bad hand. But mm -hmm. then you talk to a real poker player who is like, yeah, I know on the last four hand, you know, forty hands that you had a good hand, you did X, Y, and Z. In the last other hands, you had a terrible hand, you did X, Y, and Z. You yeah. probably have like King Eight right now. You're like, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like it's like amateur versus World Poker Tour. Right totally. now, we're all if you're not using, you know, the right data, then you are just an amateur and you're at the wrong table. You're gonna lose some money fast. A hundred percent, one hundred percent. Man, what? Okay, so exists just because what like it was cutting edge and we just haven't stayed some people just haven't stayed with the adoption curve i mean maybe you got your handles you got your your spreadsheet got all figured out around cost per lead and then you just haven't adopted your your strategy yep there's a few different reasons why this is the case right now yeah do uh, one is because at a certain point it was pretty cutting edge uh, and that is historically what marketers have been measured on and what they've been held accountable to. Right. Two is that it does require some technical integration. Like you're a Salesforce, you know, and a marketing automation person. So marketers for a long time have known that there's this customer journey, you know, like things don't just stop at the, at the lead submission. When somebody fills out a form, yeah. there's a longer customer journey that takes place. But anybody that's ever bought Google AdWords or Facebook ads or any of these knows that they're looking at a platform. There's a list of campaigns and you can see all the spend and the click-through rates and this and that. And you can see leads. So you can manually see and manually optimize toward that lead, but they don't have any other columns. They just don't have those down funnel columns. And I think part of the time that's because people don't know that it's possible. You know, it's just not the way that they have thought about it in the past. Other times it's, there's technical barriers. You know, there are technical roadblocks in some cases, for instance, like if you're not using CRM properly, like if you don't have your Salesforce configured in the right way, then it's not going to natively connect in with Google ads or, or Facebook ads. So it's going to require some manual work. It might require some 
you know, redesigning of your internal workflows, which are big barriers. And I think it was, it's only recently that marketers have really gotten a seat at the C-suite table. And by recently, I don't mean like last year, but I mean, like over the past 20 years for most of that period, and even still to an extent these days, CEOs consider marketing more of an expense uh, than a profit center. You know, it was just until recently, and even even now, like a lot of the C- CEOs that are still in place still have that view of of marketing. I can think, like I we have clients that are in, say, SaaS. In SaaS, that's not the case. In SaaS, CMOs are generally responsible for revenue. But if you have a client in, say, banking, like a banking, like a regional bank, like they will spend a hundred thousand dollars on a billboard at a stadium. You know, but if you ask them for 10 grand a month to buy super highly targeted ads in real time, as people are searching for banking services, they like, look at, they look at you like you got three eyes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I, I totally, I totally could see that, man. I once had um, a CEO of like a kind of like a WeWork Regis type company and, and we were talking about marketing and, and he was like, you know what? I, I just need my marketing to get people in the office so that my salesperson can give tours. Like we just want tours. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you do. But I know with the little devil on my shoulder in the marketing world that I could get you tours tomorrow. College students, I'll offer them free pizza. I'll do babysitting for stay at home Mm -hmm. moms. None of these people are going to buy an office space. They would definitely come in for a tour. So there's gotta be more than that. But you're right. Sometimes the, 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 c-suite if they if they weren't prepped for it and they're not in an industry it's cutting edge like SaaS, maybe they'll behind and if the and if the boss feels that way then it's really hard to move the ship 100 percent um and there is also an element that some of this stuff just wasn't possible until a few years ago gotcha so i think it's the combination of these elements is the reason that we're that we're seeing that uh, however, most CEOs, if you can sit them down and explain to them this concept of like, hey, we would like to start measuring outcomes later down in the funnel or further through the journey, yeah. they will be very bullish on that idea. So, so what you want to do, do you want to get into the what to do about yeah, it? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of jonesing for it now. Okay, so I believe you. Let's kill the CPL to, to do that. What needs to happen? How do we do that? Yeah. So there's a few different phases of maturity that you need to go through. And and the very first phase of maturity is simply mapping out your funnel at its most basic level. So you start with the most basic level is basically clicks to leads. A lot of people will call them MQLs. That's the the myth that we're busting Uh, to SQLs to deals. So that's the most basic funnel. So what you want to do is take that funnel and look at what's happening today on your highest spending platforms in terms of your costs for each of these things, right? So that's the the very most basic step one is you want to understand your funnel at its most basic level and you want to have costs associated with how much you're currently paying basically for each of these outcomes. So how much does a raw lead cost you? How much does a sales accepted or sales qualified lead cost you and how much does a deal cost you right so that's step one step two is you begin thinking about the world in terms of data signals being generated 
So every time someone clicks on your ad and your landing page loads and they're moving around the page, they might be clicking on stuff. They may not call you or fill out a form, but they might activate a field. They might put in some keystrokes. All, all of these things are data signals, right? And every landing page generates data signals. And similarly, when you fill out that form or place that phone call, there's signals generated. Yeah. There's oftentimes metadata that's associated with those signals. So if it's a call, for instance, there's metadata that says, is it a first time call or not? Is it a, what's the duration of this call, right? Um, so think about, so you've got your very basic most funnel. Now look at your funnel and think about just the other signals that are already being generated because almost any signal that's being generated can now be taken and passed back into the ad platforms to, to train algorithms. You see? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, you got to feed it, you know, the algorithm yeah. is only as good as the data points coming into it. Okay. So at this point, you've got your basic funnel. Then you've got a second version that's appended with all of the, cause remember you're thinking about the world in terms of data signals. Now it's appended with all of the data signals that are likely generated and then you want to consult your tech stack because some of those signals will be easy to track on the, uh, to basically to track and to pipe back. For instance, if you have a Salesforce instance that you're using, uh, you know, the way that you're supposed to be using it and it integrates naturally, many of those things will be easy, but you basically just want to mark right, the- Right, do it the right way. You do it as it's intended, right? Yeah. Right. So you want to mark the signals that are, easily accessible and usable in green and mark the signals that are difficult or complicated or impossible to get at in red. So those green signals, what you want to do pretty much immediately before you even rebuild your campaigns or rebuild your funnels or anything is you want to begin feeding those green, uh, easily accessible signals back into the ad platforms, namely within the walled gardens. Namely, it works best with Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Amazon, uh, tend to have the most advanced AI, but pretty much anywhere you're running ads has some sort of AI baked into how they're serving impressions. So you can feed it extra data beyond the tracking. You can literally tell it extra bits and pieces of Yep. The people that came in and let it do its 100%. little calculation to figure yeah. out. Wow. And cool. the secret is in the click ID. So if you if you're paying attention, when you click on an ad, it'll usually say GCLID ID equals this like long string of characters. And that's the long, that's the hash basically for you, your session that day, as well as your related sessions, sessions that were related to that same query. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of the magic. And uh, so, yeah, so then, so now you've got your basic stuff working. That's the short-term setup. And the, the quickest way to get up the maturity path is basically to map out what's currently happening today, begin thinking about the world in terms of data signals being generated, uh, identify specifically which signals are being generated in your case currently in the present day, and then marking green the ones that you can uh, realistically use in the short term. Got it. And then you feed those back in yep. to the mothership. You feed those back in. Yep. And so what what does what what does Google do? It gets us extra data about you, now I'm sure you're not only just giving it, well, you're definitely giving it the fact that it converted, right? So you're giving it that information, but you're also giving it other signals. Yep. Is it then using that to figure out how to get you the best traffic? 
Exactly. The converting exactly. traffic. So think about this. More than half of the clicks that you get on an ad to a cold audience, more than half of them probably will be zombies. Yeah. You know, either it'll be an accidental click, but they'll just arrive there and do nothing, or they may leave suddenly and abruptly, right? The other half do something, you know, they'll read around, they might scroll a little bit, click on something. Some small portion will fill out the form. But one of my favorite techniques is what I affectionately call the zombie scrubber. So anytime, if you are bidding on just clicks or you're bidding on just impressions, you want to have a signal that basically says, hey, this isn't a zombie Google, right? So instead of just saying, Google, hey, I want, you know, I'll take any click that meets these parameters. You say, I'll take any click that meets these parameters. And if it's not a zombie, you're going to give that one point. Right. And then once you have data within that campaign, you can create a new campaign that is saying, hey, I don't want clicks anymore. I want this signal. I want people that aren't zombies. And they have certain characteristics in common of out of the billions of data points that Google has on each individual. And so without that, Google doesn't know what a zombie is and what is, you know, what's not. Is that custom to every situation or do you have some particular things that help you figure out? What isn't a zombie? Yeah, scroll depth. So scroll depth. Mm. So if somebody scrolls all the way down, if it's a short landing page, you want to set it at basically 100% scroll depth. Uh, Longer landing pages, you might use, depending on how long it is, you might use 25% or 50% of that. But that's just a super basic signal that's available on every landing page today. You could easily create an event within... Google Analytics, or you could fire the pixel if you want there. Like any developer, if you ask them to do that, can do it. And then you need to create that action within the platform so that you can set, and so you need basically an endpoint within the platform to send that particular signal back into. Right. But in, in that way, Google now sees what's in common uh, among the zombies versus the clickers. Now, that's something that we would consider super high funnel. Right. And it's a, and it's a stand. So we would call that a standard pre-event conversion, meaning that it's standard because it exists on almost every website. Uh, It's pre-conversion because it happens before any PII is transferred, basically before a phone call or a form submit or an e-commerce transaction. So if you don't have a lot of budget and you want just higher quality traffic, that's a way to do it. But what do you call that a standard? What that's lingo that we just use internally, but we call that a standard pre-conversion event. Got it. And that would be a non-zombie. That would be a non-zombie. Yep. Do you have a, do you have a fun word for non-zombies? Are they like, (laughs) no, I'm still working on that. lingo. (laughs) I usually call it zombie scrubbers. I need to come up with something catchier for that. I mean, what, what, what do you, What's the opposite of a zombie? You know, I'm thinking like Walking Dead here. I don't know. Is there? <laughs> I don't know. Who was the guy with the crossbow? Do you know that guy, that character? Uh, no. There was a guy in Walking Dead with a crossbow. Maybe you should just name all of your humans that. <laughs> we could call it humans. Yeah. Or or no, you could call it what you would call it probably is engaged. Oh, you know engaged. what they're Daryl. Daryl's in names. Maybe just call them all Daryl's. Daryl's. There you go. So you got zombies and Daryl's. There it is. I like it. So um, 
Okay, so now that's the pre-conversion event, right? So you're saying that might be in like a nice light way of getting quality traffic, but that's what just like a drop in the bucket compared to what we're we're moving toward here, which is the revenue side. Right. So that wouldn't be much better than bidding on cost per lead. In fact, it would be worse if that were your your strategy right. the entire time because they didn't even become leads because it's right. a lower threshold. Right. Uh, but in but the the metric that you end up targeting, I don't know if you can see my whiteboard back here. Yeah, a little bit. But you, you see the, no, you probably can't read that. But the more volume that you have, the more volume of data that you have, or the more budget that you have, uh, generally, the deeper you can go into the funnel. That's why it's the holy grail, basically, to be bidding at the very end of the funnel, which is revenue but it could also be a repeat purchase, like an oh, e-commerce setting. Oh, so the more spend or volume you have yeah. with a Google, with the black box, the more you can then you can then test down into and it's set yeah. strict requirements that force it in there. Whereas if you only have like 20 bucks today. Right. You're not going to get any deals. Yeah. You're not unless get you get lucky. You know, yeah. So you can't bid on deals because there would just be no no signals firing. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Got like it. Google so would have no no content to learn on. Basically, is there a dollar amount to that? I don't think it's hard and fast, unfortunately, because the I mean, the advertisers vary so much, but the the dollar value generally is going to equate or or be related to the deal value. So okay. if you're selling t-shirts, you would never bid a thousand dollars for a conversion. Right. You know, but if you're salesforce.com and you sell a multi-million dollar thing, like you might bid a thousand dollars for a lead, you know. They won't take compensation for for a deal though, will they? I mean, Ooh. so oh, okay. well I'm just saying like if, if you're willing to take a thousand dollars for a, a deal, you, would you feed that back in or do the algorithms? Can they take that in consideration or they're not going to really trade you for that? How does that work? Well, they don't trade you for it. No, but the, but you absolutely do that. So when you are mapping out your funnel, you want to know your, the reason that you want to know your current cost of each of those things is so that you can enable value-based bidding. Gotcha. So, uh, in our case, the Daryls, I just said randomly that the Daryl, you know, we would assign a, a $1 value to it. But in real life, in proper RDO or revenue driven optimization is what we call it, you would actually want to do the math to see what is it currently costing you to get a Daryl to the website. And it's going to be a number that's smaller than your cost per lead considerably. Right. You just reverse the funnel back. How much does it cost? Exactly. You know, for deal, then lead, then Daryl, all the way back. Hundred percent. Okay. Hundred percent. And, and that helps. It helps get, letting the algorithm know, hey, this is what we're looking for. This is what we're willing to pay for Daryl. Yeah, and that or, that is a, an excellent point that you bring up because it's a critical component. Because when I send the Daryl signal back to Google, even though Google now knows that it's a desirable signal, they don't know how valuable it is. Mm-hmm. You see, that's true. They they just know. Well, you told it a dollar or whatever the number is. Yeah. 
So you're saying they just know that, but they don't know how much the deal is worth to you. They just know how much the Daryl is. Well, you need to you need to pass through with the data the value of the data. Got it. Okay. Basically, so that they know what because if it if it just comes through as an event with no value associated with it, and if you have no values generally associated with any of your conversions or events, then there's no way for Google to understand which are the most desirable, basically. Got it. So do assign where when you can calculate it, do assign a value. Yeah. So like you can you can't approach Google directly and say, hey, I'll pay you a thousand dollars for every deal. But you can create you can create campaigns where those are the thresholds. And when you create that campaign and you let it run, you quickly learn whether or not Google can do that or not. And so if you're, you know, like like you might see that you set that campaign up and you're getting deals at less than a thousand dollars all day. So you'd want to then right. choke those bids down. But if you're not getting any volume, like there's a chance you just wouldn't get any volume, then you would need to either improve the post-click experience so that you're getting more folks into the funnel or crank that bid up if you can afford it. Right. Right. So, okay. Cool. So can you can you walk me down deeper now? So we've got the Daryls figured out. Do you still do a CPL in terms of value to the algorithms or we're skipping that all together? We're just going individual signal value. Uh, we always we always will measure and use CPL to an extent. Like that's always gotcha. included when we set up the the data plumbing. So we, okay. we you know, once you have all of your uh, metrics listed out and you want to start passing it, we call that part data plumbing. Okay. So we're always going to include uh, the what we would call the conversion, which is the form submission of a phone call. We're always going to include that as a signal and we're always going to pass that back. The difference is that we're not using it as a target in most cases. Mm, what, what does become the target then? A target with the algorithm or target in general or both? Uh, both. Okay. Both. So we, I mean, we'll still measure it. We don't obsess about it. We don't, we don't use it as our primary, uh, source of making decisions. We'll bid on things like cost per first time phone call that lasted more than five minutes. Gotcha. Right. Or we'll bid on, uh, cost per, like in the financial space, they'll do credit approvals, cost per approved credit pool, for instance. So when you look, and that's another key for marketers is that you do have to cozy up with the sales team. Uh, some marketer, I think most marketers understand the customer journey and they, especially in the B2B space, I think are spending more time in general, like with but between sales and marketing. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't understand what happens to the leads after they come through, that can be an amazing opportunity because if I promise, if you were sitting there like shadowing a salesperson for a week and seeing everything that they do, you would be like, oh man, like that's really good. You can get really creative. Like you, like you could theoretically do, we haven't actually done this one, but imagine, I bet you deals in Salesforce or opportunities in Salesforce where there's more notes happening, more notes happening or more attachments happening on that particular opportunity versus less. 
all things equal probably means it's a more important opportunity probably mm-hmm. means it's more likely to close probably means this probably means that so so once you've done step one with basically what exists now then when you move into the second phase of maturity you want to start thinking about well what would the ideal case be or what would the ideal solution be like if we take our last hundred deals that we've gotten and we do some uh some correlation analysis on these 15 variables that we think matter like which ones actually do matter the most or correlate the most with the with the outcomes that you're seeking so once you have the basics it's very much like moving up the hierarchy of needs like the very first thing that you need if you don't have columns to the right of your cost per lead column that show you in platform in real time what's happening down funnel yeah, that's the first step is getting that in place. Because if you're just sitting there looking at your Google ads and you see your campaigns and the column on the far right or close to it is cost per lead and you don't have anything closer to the money than that, the very first step is just to get the visibility into it. Because even if you have the, if you have the visibility into it, you can even optimize toward the ultimate outcomes manually without even without even doing any of the algo training portions. Right. And chances are, if you're looking at 10 campaigns and the cost per lead of those campaigns ranges from low to high, chances are some of the ones that look less attractive on a cost per lead basis look a lot more attractive on a cost per sale basis. Right. That makes total sense, man. And one time I had two blogs, I was tracking them both separately in Pardot and plugged it into Salesforce so I could see. And exactly what you're saying happened. We got thousands of leads from this one blog. It was super popular, converted people like crazy, thousands and tens of thousands of visitors. And we we actually were investing in it, spent money on it, all that. The other one mm-hmm. had, we didn't invest in it. We just, we all wrote strategically on, on our, in our spare time. Didn't have the, the sexy numbers on the, the lead column. But thankfully we had that conversion column and the revenue column on there, which very clearly showed that that first one drove like nothing it took it's just something like eight years for 3k to show up in there after me talking about it for years but the other one just converted like a genie it was like a magic it was a magic thing and we didn't spend anything on it we weren't even giving it attention because we it was just for a fun but we were we realized later we were talking to two different buyer you know audiences and one was more junior and one was actually ended up being the decision maker that we were sort of gearing these blogs to but if we didn't have that man we would have invested so much i was paying thousands that you know we were writing blogs on it we we're promoting it and it was all but useless i mean brand hits are wonderful but it it converted nothing you know uh, for a long time and without that column oof yeah that's amazing that's an amazing example and an amazing use case and just imagine you know, not only the money that it saved you, but the time, like yeah. you were going out speaking, talking about it, you know, like there's a lot of opportunity costs. So like, so yeah, that is the bottom of that hierarchy of needs. That's like the food shelter is to have that visibility so that you right. can make decisions. Cause it's a real waste otherwise, you know I mean? Not only are yeah. you throwing good money after bad, but also your time. Just think about your time. I mean, that's the, the most finite resource we have really. You know, it's crazy to think of that as the the base need for the hierarchy. Right. <laughs> a lot of people are trying to get the base needs and marketing set up. But without it, man, you just get beat up by sales asking for more leads. And 
how do you, I mean, how do you get out of that? Speaking of, you mentioned, you know, cozying up to sales. There's that classic age old, give me more leads. The leads are shit, you know? Yeah. But give me more, but they're terrible. And, right. And marketing is kind of, if they don't, whatever, they're sort of stuck in this weird middle tennis match. Well, I think it's good news for folks like that because this type of uh, insight and visibility, first off, like salespeople appreciate good leads. I think if they had a fair number of good leads, they would probably be a lot less vocal about it. You know? <laughs> good call. Yeah. Uh, so that's first off. But second off is that the visibility that you get back into campaigns and into the down funnel, what happens, enables you to continually get better and better leads. So you could say, so once you have that system set up uh, in the further levels of maturity are things where you are working with the sales team and you're basically rebuilding and rethinking the post-click experience, like what happens after your landing page loads uh, in a way that generates useful data signals. So most landing pages are, you know, some content and a form. But if you think of a landing page experience that looks more like a quiz, or if you build a landing page experience that looks more like a quiz that is more interactive, more visual in nature, uh, and, and importantly starts with questions that are relevant to the context of the click, but not containing PII. So instead of like, like hey, what's your email address? It's like, hey, how long have you been a podcaster? Right. Um years like four right but i'm saying like if you were to try to if you were to generate leads for yourself for podcasting if your landing page instead of your typical landing page said hey nice to meet you how long have you been a podcaster and right. somebody could choose you know zero to one or two to three years or whatever your bounce rates would be so much lower than mine like nobody would be, like you would get a high percentage of people interacting with that first question in the experience and you're generating useful data signals. Right. And then you could, so it's actually going to be, I think sales teams would love this because the leads will get better, but they will also have a more collaborative uh, role in the process, yeah. Who, whichever sales team is interested, because one of the first things we'll always ask clients is basically, hey, if I'm a lead, say I'm a decent lead and I call you, like what are the first few questions other than my name and email that the sales team is going to ask to qualify or categorize me? So those are essentially the data bits that we need from sales teams to understand what is a good lead. And right. so if they see us proactively like rebuilding landing pages and funnels to gear around those things that they're that they're asking for and they sense some sense of progress and they see the leads generally getting better. Even if the quantity is not up, they'll be busier working good deals. You know, they won't have time to complain about the leads. Yeah, exactly. That's good. That's a good call. It all ties back into the getting the signals and having the quality coming through so that hundred percent, man. Yeah. Quality, quality would settle that for sure. I think the, the quantity is just a, I don't know. That's kind of a, secondary ask really it's like well do something give me something yeah. to do uh, yeah makes sense tell me about like like i think a lot of people listening would love the dream a little bit tell me about like an ideal state maybe a, a group you've worked with or a customer just 
how crazy can this get? How fine-tuned and how just with all the signals, all the greens are coming in and what kind of things have you been able to see? Yeah. So super crazy stuff. So the, as you progress up the hierarchy, yeah, you begin to use third-party signals to validate or sometimes invalidate your other signals. So here's an example. Uh, in the financial service space, there's a, a credit pool API that you can use basically to uh, you know, soft, run up soft credit pool. So in, and, and that would be, well, I guess that wouldn't necessarily be a third party signal, but that's basically a super powerful and super informative signal uh, that can be used to essentially outrank the others. Mm-hmm. So that, and that's basically pulling information from a third party on the fly during that session. Think of it in a B2B setting. In a B2B setting, you've got your sixth sense, you've got your ABM platforms that they can identify in real time. Is this on your target accounts list? Or is this, you know, does employee count equal greater than a thousand? Right. So the next level stuff is when you're pulling signals out. Uh, from third parties to basically layer on, validate, or otherwise invalidate your uh, the native signals that you have access to from your own data sets. And then you feed that back in. Yep. You feed that all back in. And sometimes you might use it as the trump card. Sometimes you might huh. use that as an audience builder. You know, sometimes you might buy, sometimes you might intentionally bid really up the funnel where you're looking for Daryl's. So you're looking for non-zombies and account matched. And you might use that to build an audience. You might use that to build a retargeting audience because that's an expensive audience. That's a sought after audience, you know, to get after say CISOs or whatever CXO you want. So you could use a technique like this to buy cheap clicks that are qualified with this third-party data source to build a list. Cause if you wanted to get in front of that same audience on LinkedIn, like it would be a hundred dollar CPMs, right? But you could build that list up on Twitter. I love Twitter, but on Twitter, you could build it up uh, and or on Google and you could get CPMs for like $5 all day long. Because you're, it's two things that seem like it's no big deal, but because you have the, the data, especially that, even the size or it's on my target account list, you're able to, man, I can see how that just really changes the game. It's not just a, not just a Daryl, but it's a, it's a, a particular Daryl, you know, from this area or this, this account, man, that'd be huge. Yeah. It's like qualified anonymous audiences, basically. Qualified anonymous audiences. I love that. And you love Twitter. I do. Tell me about it. Cause like, I feel like it had its heyday and then it's kind of hanging out. Now who knows, who knows what happens with Elon Musk, but what you're saying as a, as an oh. ad platform, it's got, got some legs. I like it as an ad platform, man. There's a few things I like about it. One is that uh, for, it's really good for personal branding. Okay. I don't yeah. know if you know this guy, Dennis, Yu, but he's like a kind of a brand hacker, really smart guy, former Yahoo. He was the head of analytics or something at Yahoo back in the day. Um, but it's one of the only platforms where you don't actually need a page to run ads. So with Facebook, you need a page. Uh, I guess you don't really need a page with Google cause they don't have pages, but with LinkedIn, you need a page. Mm. 
Uh, but one of Dennis used things is what he calls a dollar a day strategy. So dollar a day strategy is basically a really, really inexpensive way to get more mileage out of your content, to get more distribution for your content, where you uh, are literally, and, and it helps tremendously, like ads that don't look like ads are the ones that tend to work best. Right. So if you see me, like if you're vaguely familiar with me and then you see me on Twitter, like you're likely to not even really notice that it's an ad and engage with it in a higher rate. So I like that you can basically run kind of personal branding style ads on the fly or um, on the sly. So like for any CMO or anybody that wants to be known as that kind of face of their company, that can be a really super inexpensive way to get uh, to get good distribution. But you you can layer that. So in a, in a world of account based marketing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I really love about Twitter, well, one is you can target by handles. So you can upload like a million handles really? and have that be your audience. Yeah. So if you found out that of your ABM list, you found all the CMOs or CISOs or whoever you wanted to target, you could literally upload all their handles and then target yep. just them. Yep. Is that expensive? Uh yeah. I mean, on a CPM basis, <laughs> More. it would be expensive than broad, but you want to have a big list to do that big list because the the minimum they say is i think a hundred or a thousand but okay. really Still if you don't have like ten thousand or more like you're probably not going to get much distribution gotcha but perhaps even cooler than that is you can target lookalikes of followers of other handles or you could be, basically you can target followers of other handles so me you know we're in the agency space we would like to you know target growing companies right Right. Or say we wanted to target entrepreneurs. So there's a million Twitter tweeters, like Fast Company or these publishers or whoever that have already built these audiences. So you can find somebody with, basically you can find somebody with a big ass audience of people that would be really attractive prospects for you. Yeah. And target that organization's followers as well as lookalikes of those followers. Wow. So I can see the lookalikes being really an interesting experiment too, especially if you're targeting competitors or whatnot, but no, that's, they look like this, but what else could they be? Yeah. So think about like, if you're, so for some of your clients, especially if they're B2B, you know, podcasters putting out good content doing the hard stuff already, you know, by putting out this good content, right. Posting it organically, I'm sure emailing it out literally for a dollar a day, you can have this like, ninja targeted just little thing that's going and you keep the audience the same so you spend a good amount of time building out that audience Mm. and then you're just peppering with different content types you know you just have access to your literally like your tier one accounts on your abm thing whoever your most sought after audience is you can just have this nice little engine running in the background that you're just softening those beaches all day long for for a dollar a day jeez What's the dollar like? Literally, a dollar in ad spend, or dollar CPM, or dollar? Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, you could 100% do it on Twitter for a dollar a day, uh, but it would, you know, be pretty low volume. So I think, yeah. do five. It started as a dollar a day because it was on Facebook with boosting posts, the way that Dennis uh, teaches gotcha. it. But th- that's, I think, just more of a clever way to say it than anything. Like you cannot do a dollar a day on LinkedIn. 
but it's basically this idea of just like small amount of money each day, a dollar, five dollars, yeah. ten dollars, whatever it is. Wow. You know, targeted at this super coveted audience. So cool, man. What's your take on LinkedIn? I love LinkedIn too, but mostly for organic. I think LinkedIn is a huge arbitrage opportunity, organic, just organically for anybody in B2B. Uh, and I was obsessed with LinkedIn actually for the better part of like 2017 and 2018 because they'd redesigned their whole site at that point to really put the news uh, feed front and center, just the way that Facebook's was. Whereas previously it, it was, it existed, but it wasn't so like, it wasn't the homepage. So they rebuilt their whole site and they went, uh, they went out about basically trying to attract creators, more and more creators. And in the days of 2017, 2018, there was very few creators. So you could publish and just get thousands, tens of thousands of impressions uh, for free, essentially. And it's not quite as attractive of an opportunity now just because it's got, gained a lot of creators and there's a lot more content. Uh, but it's still like, if you publish, you will get impressions. Like even if your post sucks, like you will get impressions. And if you stick with it consistently and follow a few other kind of tried and true uh, rules, then you'll get more and more impressions over time. And I, I think it's, um, it's not, it, I think it probably falls more in kind of the awareness and brand building category. Yeah. You're not necessarily going to get like tons of super sales qualified leads every day from it, uh, but you will get some and they show up usually in your direct messages or uh, from connections that you create. So I think any B2B, like a really just simple and no brainer thing to do is just start a LinkedIn habit. You know, it doesn't have to be daily. It doesn't even have, I mean, it should be weekly, but just a few hours a week go in there with a plan, you know, get in, get out, maybe socialize a little bit if you want. But I think LinkedIn is just a huge arbitrage opportunity still. I post on LinkedIn in, in fits and spurts, sometimes more consistently than others. But every single month, without a doubt, my prof or my posts collectively in a given month get far more traffic than our website. Or that's, that is views, far more yeah, views. Yeah, yeah. But no, you're right. You can, you know, especially if you've got a regular habit, you can totally yeah. get a ton of attention. Totally. I'm just looking you up right now. So yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. A bajillion followers and a lot of, a lot of content happening. Yeah. A lot of content on a regular basis. And this is crazy. So I know a lot of people go there to learn. So I'd love to ask you this sort of this transition question where like, where do you go to learn? Uh, any any top favorite books you've read lately or just all time or podcasts or any kind of source of information? You know, I really study the documentation of the platform themselves. Like I read most of what Google puts out and I read it with a certain, with a certain lens to it because Google, you know, they have their own agendas, obviously. And sometimes they outright lie. Yeah. And other times they hint. Um, so I'm really, I, I read over the documentation of the platforms pretty closely. So all of like Google Analytics news or the, the Google newsletters I'm on, the Facebook stuff I'm on, I go through their trainings and stuff. Um, 
not to pass the certification, but just to like see if I can still pass it, you know, and learn something uh, along the way. Yeah. Uh, I use Twitter a lot for that. Uh, I'm big into Web3 these days. So I've been mm. reading and learning about crypto and Web3 quite a bit. Uh, I One of our core values as a company and one of my core values as an individual has been I've always loved learning and reading. Like I remember from just a very young age, I was in this bookstore and I saw all these cool titles and I was just like, had the thought, man, I want to sit here and just read these all day. Right. So uh, we really focus a lot on learning to the tune of um, like we have teams internally, including my team, which I had at the sales and marketing team currently yeah. is we have a readers or leaders doc where everybody posts their, uh, you know, post links to the things that they're reading. We have internal Slack channels that we're putting stuff through. Yeah. Um, I, well, I learn a lot through interviewing people on the pod. I've met some real badasses on the pod. Isn't that amazing? You just, so many cool people and you get to pick their brains and yeah, just learn from all their wisdom and experience, especially in the areas that you know even less about, you know, that's even better. You get yeah. them on, you're just like, great, cool. I had a gap here for a long time. Totally, totally. There's, um, I'm working on a book myself, actually. Oh, tell me about it. Uh, well, it's very much about this topic, which we've internally. So everything we've spoken about today, from the you know climbing up the hierarchy of needs to, yeah. we didn't really get that far into the post-click experience, but we've kind of packaged it into a system we call revenue-driven optimization. Uh, and it's mostly what we've been doing now for years, but we've like defined it more clearly and, you know, like came up with fun buzzwords for the, for the different things, Nice. but it's basically going to be like a manual on how to go from buying impressions and clicks to buying like deals and clients or customers. Dude. So good. That book will be epic, dude. But to go from buying impressions to buying deals. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. So where, where you, you kind of have the, the scaffolding built for, like the chapters mapped out? No, no, not at all. It, it just, it well, I'd been thinking about it for a couple of years, just very passively. Sure. Uh, but recently, internally, we've been going through this big thing of really defining and uh, laying out the different steps for revenue-driven optimization um, to rebuild that area of the business, kind of in the image of built to sell. I don't know if you've heard read that yeah, book. Yeah, totally. Um, but I'm hoping, because it is a very complex process, and there are certainly some things about individual businesses that need to be taken into account when doing it. But I do have a vision and a dream and a hope and some confidence that we can put it into a system where we can teach you know, people without that much experience how to do it. Uh, maybe not one single person does the whole thing, but I think we can you know, break it out into neat and digestible little little pieces hell yeah um to really scale it out and maybe even train right because we've done a lot of training historically but i really like nothing really gets me going as much as taking somebody that doesn't really know digital that well at all and has very little confidence and then training them especially if we can train them fairly quickly to you know be confident and have that everybody has an aha moment you know, like when you're learning something new, whether it's learning how to play the guitar or learning digital, you have this kind of aha moment where you can start to do some of the things well, uh, sub or unconsciously or subconsciously. 
So seeing that moment take place in people is, is hugely gratifying for me. You know, I, I've loved those experiences, but I've never heard it defined like that. I love that definition. It's when yeah. they, and they feel like they, they can execute that with a little bit of skill and they just that sort of clicks like, Oh, I got this, yeah. you know, the training wheels are off kind of thing. Yeah. That actually is kind of scary when the kids uh, take the training wheels off the bike and you're like, uh, I want to kind of just hold the bike the whole time, but I can't run that fast. And I also probably should let you go. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Right. Aha. Then riding on the bike. Well, dude, tell me, who are you? Like you, you know, so much and I'm stoked. You're writing a book. Take me back in time. Like, little you days did you know you're going to be you know writing books like little chris did you learning a lot reading a lot of books what was it like man it was the short answer is no i had no idea i was definitely not like a prodigy kid by any means i was pretty normal you know i was i would play with my friends outside i was into football we were into sports uh i always sucked at school i sucked badly at school i was generally pretty good socially like people people would tell me from a young age i remember really early people would be like oh you're gonna be a great salesman (laughs) i never really really knew quite why but i figured that was my path my older brother went down that path he was killing it in mortgages back in the back in the heyday of the you know the pre-subprime bubble burst so he was killing it in mortgages maryland i grew up in maryland yeah yeah okay yeah, Maryland. Uh, but so he was killing it in sales. My family on my dad's side, I look quite American, but my my dad is Persian. He's Iranian. Oh, no so, yeah, so he's got a darker complexion and you may not think he was my dad if you saw him, but in that culture, they really value the sciences, right? So you're either a doctor or an engineer or maybe right. a lawyer or like your family is ashamed of you, you know, right. you're, you're a failure. <laughs> yeah. um, so I you're grew not going up into theater that. as a major for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I, right. Exactly. <laughs> so I grew up really kind of having math and science uh, shoved down my throat and I, I got decent enough at math, you know, I don't know like differential equations or anything, but you know, very, very strong with, with basic math and numbers. Uh, so I studied business. I got cussed out by my dad every other day and I went down basically like a a sales path. And I think the sales profession is like more legit now. It's like more respected, but it's got a negative connotation. But anyway, that's, that's what I figured uh, I would do. I got out of school. I went to selling mortgages, but the timing was horrible because the, the bubble was bursting basically. So that was a horrible job. I was just cold calling for nine hours a day and listening to voice, you know, leaving voice messages and stuff. And that was um, after school or during that school? was after school. Okay. That was after school. But somewhere right around then I started a website. I think I saw an ad or no, one of my buddies had been doing it and he was telling me about it briefly. So I got into interested in digital, started a website uh, about a niche health topic. I was following this system that I saw, which was essentially SEO. They didn't call it SEO, but it was about doing keyword research and publishing content. Uh, And, but it also included as part of the system, it also included analytics. It included how to Mm. build, how to build the list. It it included basically like how to drive the traffic, how to build the audience and then how to monetize it. So was it a topic like you, personally interested in or just use it as an experiment to go after 
it was uh we we thought long and hard about the niche uh so we considered a few and the the criteria that they provided were basically like there's people searching about it but there's not that much there's not very many pages got published it. about it got it so we went through a couple the one that we ultimately chose is a little bit embarrassing but my um my older brother at the time had really sweaty pits like really bad he couldn't control it everybody's got a friend who's just like oh my it's like it's not even hot in here man why like, dude like drink that? some water so uh <laughs> so but he said he spent hours re you know researching and stuff online and couldn't find anything so that became the niche. The uh, website was byebysweating.com. Wow. And that's where I cut my teeth. It's embarrassing. That's where I cut <laughs> my teeth. Um, but the, but it's at, there's absolutely an audience out there. Like we, 100%, um, yeah. we were doing pretty well uh, there for, for quite a while. But I remember specifically, you know, we did keyword research and then we started planning out like the information architecture and which pages we were going to write and things. So we did that. And then we, and then we just started writing according to this rubric that was provided from this system that I bought. And we didn't really expect much, but uh, we checked the analytics logs and that was before Google analytics, but we checked those logs and we were baffled. We'd gotten like 700 visitors. And wow. I, I was like, this can't be right. And then you double click and it shows you sort of where they're coming from. And they're coming from Australia and they're coming wow. from Europe and they're from, and that was for me, the moment where I, I knew this was what I was going to do. Like I knew I was going to, I was like, this is awesome. Cause at first it was all content creation, which is the art side of things. But sure. then right yeah. when I saw numbers happening, um, I became really, really intrigued because it's just like a fun equation. You know, I just, I oh, just yeah. thought it was really fun and compared to the other stuff. So after I quit the mortgages, I started this, but my dad cussed me out again. So I went and got a job at uh, T row price, basically selling small business retirement plans. Uh, and I eventually quit that job to pursue this website full time. Really? Wow. Yeah, we, we were getting, how'd you explain that at family holidays, right? Oh God, it was so hard <laughs> and so embarrassing. Were your brothers like engineers and doctors too, that made it worse? All of them. Oh all man. Of them. They were all in grad school or in, uh, doing their re residencies or whatever. You're like dad, I'm an entrepreneur. They're like buying real estate and shit, which Persians also love real estate. Oh, um, man. but yeah, I was, I was a dog in the family for a while there. Uh, but then, so as I was building it out, I was serving tables at the Cheesecake Factory at night. And one of my customers was the owner of this local agency here called R2I. Hmm. So he asked me, what am I doing with my life? And I guess he saw some potential in me. And I was like, I just burst. I was like, dude, I figured out how to get free traffic from Google. And I got like 2000 people on my list and my open rates are sick. Um, and, uh, and so he was like, hey, come work for us. So he recruited me into that. Hell yeah. And I remember going lucky into guy, agency. right? He's just out there getting some, you know, whatever he's getting at Cheesecake Factory. And then, you know, yeah. you know, ask the general question. I'm sure you've done this too, right? We already read, hey, what are you up to? Maybe, you know, sometimes yeah. a good, good waiter or waitress, like, you're like, let's go. Like, 100%. I love that attitude. Dude, but good man. servers are, can be great account managers. Oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. I don't even know how you remember all those things. Oh, can, yeah. I, glass of water? oh can I get some extra mayo too, please? Mm -hmm. and this and that. It's just, yeah, 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 sure. No problem. But, uh, but yeah. And then I had another 
aha moment. So right when I arrived in that agency, I started getting tasks and assignments. And literally, I think as I was doing my first task that was given to me, I was like, this is it. Like, wow. like this is so easy because it was fun. And previously I'd been in like call centers, just oh, like yeah. so boring. Um, but it was fun. And I, I didn't originally plan to start web mechanics. I was still doing the bye-bye sweating thing. And that was taking up most of my mental uh, energy at that time. But I, But after a certain point, I just really started to understand how the agency business worked. And it was just really kind of easy, frankly, you know, like there yeah. was these clients that, and I was a 21 year old kid, 22 year old kid at that time, but I, apparently my education was advanced, you know? Mm. So like there, it was still the early days. Like people just didn't know things that you would now consider to be super basic. So I'm over here, you know, dazzling these clients that are paying 10, 20, 30,000 bucks a month. And I'm not making anywhere near that. And the entrepreneur uh, in me, well, I also have a cousin who's my co-founder and him and I had always been kind of entrepreneurial growing up. You know, we had like little side hustles and stuff we would do, Uh, but he was just about to graduate school. And he was also kind of COO at our other buddy's startup that had gone from zero to a couple million bucks. So he's a programmer by training, but he basically got a street MBA. Yeah. And as he was starting to graduate and I was starting to more and more get the itch, we said, Hey man, let's, let's, you know, hang up our, hang up our shingle or hang up our tile or whatever you call it. And let's just go out for it. Hell yeah! And uh, so we started originally as pure play SEO. All we did was organic search. Nice. Yeah, but then uh, we had a lot of clients that were getting tons of traffic, but their sites just sucked badly. Like they had no phone numbers anywhere. They didn't have any, because we were working with small companies, you know, some didn't have contact forms or nothing. So we added conversion rate optimization as a second service. Um, and then paid media came shortly after that. That makes sense. I mean, that's the classic, right? You can drive amazing traffic to a site, but if they're, landing pages crap and they ask all the wrong questions or they don't have a page at all. Like how many ads have I seen go right to a homepage, you know, and just like, Oh no, stop. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So, okay. So, and then right now, so you've got web mechanics and then also the, is it Oboe or what's the other agency? OBO. OBO. Yep. So OBO is our sister company uh, and they, essentially spun out of web mechanics they um one of my good buddies noah noah burke same dude who had started uh, a company in college where my co-founder got his street mba yeah so he went through the motions you know and uh, did various things but he ended up wanting to start uh, another agency and so he approached us with it so we gave him the four c's basically we gave him cash crib which was office space uh clients and credibility basically merry christmas like that's a that's a lot of c's yeah yeah and we got a a stake in the company like company pretty much the majority stake but then uh over time as they grew they evolved they started as a cold email provider all they were doing was cold outbound emails for b2b's Right. Uh, but then, yeah, you know that story, uh, but they've evolved beautifully and gracefully to now uh, they're in the di- digital transformation space. So they're 
uh, heavyhittermonday.com partners, heavy hitter uh, HubSpot partners. Perfect. And yeah. they're they're just killing it, man. And they they now um, haven't bought us out completely, but they own most of the business, and they're just on a tear, man. Awesome. They're uh, yeah, they have really great partnerships with those companies and sales firms at those or salespeople at those companies. So they're just getting leads, like they, you know, basically have more work than they can handle. That's so good, man. That's so good to see that it starts out with the, the C's and then it, ah, it's really taking its life of its own. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm, I'm really impressed and really proud of them. And they work their asses off for it too. Like there was, sure. you know, they always say from the outside looking in, it seems like an overnight success. Like that's very much a, a story for them. Like there was years in there where we, we saw the writing on the wall with cold email. It was like, we don't want to yeah. be in that business. That sucks. Uh, and then there was a, there was a very difficult period of time where it was just like a lack of product market. Like we like, didn't even really know what was happening, you know? And I know that the co-founders themselves wanted to give up at several, several different points along the way, but then, Oh, we were into HubSpot we still love HubSpot. Uh, so then they were like, Hey, can we get into HubSpot too? So we were like, sure. So then they just came in and they're, so most of the, HubSpot agencies are kind of like marketing focused, you know, like totally. they'll help you with their marketing. They came with like the hardcore tech because they nice. also have a technical co-founder. So they came and they're like, yo, we'll do the back end. We'll just like, just get this thing singing, you know? Love that. Totally love that, man. Um, yeah, I got a kind of a hypothetical question for you next. If you're ready for this. Sure. Um, I may or may not have a time machine up here in New Hampshire. And let's say you come visit, we get some lobster and some beer, and then we try out the time machine. It's in the backyard covered in a tarp. So you use the time machine, and but it's a particular kind of machine where it goes back in time to a couple days after you graduated with that, that business degree. Um, and you know, you got your, your dad asking you what's up, and you get to go meet that version, that Chris, um, a couple days afterward in case there were some parties. What do you tell them? What do you tell yourself knowing all the things you've been through? Any recommendations, any advice? What do you say? Oh, God, it's so hard. Uh, I'll say a few things just kind of unfiltered and largely for the, uh, for the benefit of anybody that may be listening. But uh, I honestly think that we might have done a little bit better by staying in the like, corporate world or staying, like, staying employed for a little bit longer because we were just so young when we started, mm. like we were 22, we were kids. Like we didn't know. Yeah. Like, so to the tune of, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as an agency that did this type of thing until like a year or two before we started web mechanics. Right. So it worked out fine, you know, but I think that if, if, uh, if I could have it back, I would probably suggest to my younger self, to spend a few more years, not necessarily at R2I. I mean, they're, they're a perfectly fine agency uh, and I love them and owe them a ton, but I would probably go to like larger companies, maybe like some publicly traded companies just to oh, see yeah. like, or like I might like beg some, you know, investment banking firm who would have never hired me at that time. I might like beg them to come and work for free just to like understand better. But I think in general, like people right when they come out of school are kind of just like 
you know, a little bit shell shocked or like, you just don't know what you don't know. Right. But I think that if I had done that, we probably could have gotten to a million in the first year. You know, we probably would have hit 5 million and 10 million and faster than we did. Um, did you have a lot of iterations? You had like a lot of trial by fire, just learning how businesses worked even just by bouncing up against them. Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, we had to figure everything out basically along the way and we had good mentors, you know, and I mean, the web is just like, there's, I mean, yeah. it's just a game changer. I'm surprised more people don't just talk about how awesome it is that there's like so much free and awesome information available on the web. But, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think we could have accelerated our uh, growth curve. So I would have told them that. I probably also would have told them to buy a bunch of domains, right? Yeah. Or like to buy, you know, a bunch of these assets that we see are now flying, like buy Bitcoin as soon as you hear <laughs> of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that, that would probably be the number one. And frankly, like after we're done with web mechanics, I might go and do just that, you know, still like just to go to these like really innovative and you know like there's a lot of firms out west and a lot of firms in new york that like they're just playing on a different field you know yeah like the caliber of talent there is just is just next next level and i just like to i mean just being around that uh i think is is tremendously beneficial yeah and back back to the learning you know to be around those people that would be constantly learning from them yeah Ties back in. Little Chris picking up books in that library. <laughs> doing the thing. That's crazy, yeah, man. man. And now, yeah, now you got agencies. You got you got agencies. You've got you got kids. Yeah. How, how do you juggle it all? Oh man, I have these two beautiful kids, but they're such a pain in the ass sometimes. <laughs> uh, it gets better, you know, as they get older. I know. You're one of the first people that tells me that, which yeah. uh which most people are like, oh, it's gonna get a lot harder. Um, so that's reassuring to hear, but they're just so fucking cute though, man. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're the just cuteness. so cute, so incredibly cute, but you know what, man, it is stressful. I think just having kids is stressful. Like anybody with kids is just basically stressed out automatically by that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but running an agency is definitely challenging. I mean, you know, the, the drill like it's oh yeah not for the faint of heart for sure and i think i have a couple of uh mechanisms for coping i'm a i'm a huge meditator i'm a huge believer in like thoughts or things kind of law of attraction type of a thing yeah yeah um so i have a daily meditation practice i've been you know pretty pretty um consistent with for many years now so i think that helps tremendously what's your secret to doing it consistently uh i just well, I basically just kind of forced myself for a period of time. And then yeah. it now is, is more or less habit. Got it. You It took a while. Just, no, I'm doing this. Just a little bit of stubbornness. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do this today. I'm going to do yeah. this today. And, and I'll miss some days naturally, yeah. uh, but I always go back to it. And there were many years where I was like less consistent. Like I would be consistent sure. for a few months, but then fall off for a few months. Um, but for the last several years, I've been, very steady Eddie with it. And I think it comes down to a belief that I, I think, well, I know my belief is that it, 
uh, meditating or clearing your mind like that essentially allows for your like natural Zen or your natural flow or your natural attractive powers to emerge. Because yeah. if you don't shut your mind off at all, you're either sleeping or you're awake. And when we're awake, then our mind is going constantly, even if it's good thoughts, you, you know, like you wake up in the morning. Oh shit. What's my schedule? I got to check my, Oh, I got to check. I got to brush my teeth. Oh man. The kid's screaming. Da, da, da. It's just constant chaos in your yeah. mind or not chaos, but it's activity in your mind. Activity. So I believe that by shutting that off for a little while, it enables or like more and faster manifestations is basically not to get too like new agey on you, but no, that's cool. That's though. the so, thing that motivates me to do it. Cause I'm like, yo, let's put in some work and then we'll, we'll get some returns on the back end. Do you have any like mantras or any kind of things you repeat to yourself or? No, you, no, you I don't. Out, like, how do you manifest? You, you write it out. You're like, Hey, I, like goals. Or do you just write out like, this is where I want to be. Or how do you manifest things? So I do a lot of mental imagery. Cool. Um, if you know the book Psycho-Cybernetics, I don't know if you're familiar with no, that, but I would definitely familiar, recommend but no. that. Um, but Psycho-Cybernetics is essentially like how to program your mind sort of a thing. Oh, cool. Because when you're, well, nothing is good or bad. Nothing is black or white. And in most cases, there's some silver line to be seen. And with with like meditation plus visualization, I've found that I don't know if it's just that you're noticing it more or that you're, because you're looking for success more, but, um, but that, so my meditation practice is just pure blank. You know, I do my, my best to not have any thoughts whatsoever. Any thoughts. Yeah. Um, whereas then I'll do uh, mental imagery, which I do at night and also just throughout the day, like I'm running one of my success, uh, my, one of my victory moments right now. Nice. So you, so you do those, you know, consistently throughout the day, especially at times where you're feeling good. Uh, and I, I, I do write, you know, I oftentimes do write stuff down. Uh, sometimes like in the form of like a narrative, you know, like if I really want some account to close or really want to like do really great in some meeting, sometimes I'll write it out in the form of a narrative, but I don't do that like very consistently. But I combo basically just pure meditation with vivid imagery. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I looked up the psychocybernetics, and it, it's frequently bought with Atomic Habits, great book, and The Four Agreements, great book. So nice. it's in like good company. Yeah, uh, for sure. Well, th dude, this is this is fantastic. Uh, I'm I'm sure we could probably talk for another hour. I feel like probably. one of us needs to do a meditation podcast. Uh, and just go deep in on this topic because uh, we could probably talk all day. Yeah. Um, but I want to I want to bring it back around to you and um, your company, your agency. Pete, you know, who's the best you know group to work with you? you know, is it B2B? Is it SaaS? Who are the best customers for you of the people listening? Kind of let them know that that's them. 100 percent. So we operate usually in two major segments. One is B2Bs. So B2B SaaS is great. B2B professional service is great. The main thing is that most of our B2B clients sell expensive things. You know, they're selling enterprise software, they're selling consulting, or they're selling, you know, some kind of SaaS with a high lifetime value. So if B2B and high average selling price, like higher than a few thousand bucks, we're probably a good match. Uh, 
on the B2C side, we do mostly lead gen. So if you're a B2C in a, what we call the money or life industries, so financial, health, EDU, you know, kind of like the major important uh, life decisions, the high consideration purchases yeah. uh, that folks make, and you're in the lead gen space, you know, so you're looking for more leads, better leads. You probably have a call center, you know, you probably have CRM. Uh, we do really, really well uh, cranking things up for those types of folks, particularly as it refers to what we were talking to here today, which was the revenue-driven optimization, basically the, yeah. the AI-driven media buying where you're bidding on customers and not clicks uh, and uh, post-click experiences that generate useful data signals to, to fuel your ongoing ops. So. Love it. Yep. In whether it's B2B or B2C, it's that high transaction value, the high consideration. It, you know, it's something that someone needs to really think about. They're shopping, they're researching. It, we're not we're not selling lollipops, we're selling some right. your, your future college education or or that you know, gigantic enterprise software sale. hundred percent. hundred percent. So if you know, they fit that and or they just want to connect professionally. Um, what kind of social sites, where should they go to, to reach out to you? Also, what kind of websites should they go? Yep. Yeah. So you can check out our website at webmechanics.com. It's spelled W-E-B and then mechanics is M-E-C-H-A-N-I-X.com. Uh, or just check me out on LinkedIn, Chris Mechanic. You can find me on Twitter, same handle. Um, LinkedIn, I probably spend more time, more time on overall, but yeah. Okay, perfect. Good stuff, man. That, Hell I, yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, this thank was fun. You so much for coming on here. I've learned a ton. Like, I don't bullshit these questions because I, one, I can't handle that. And then, two, I really need to learn things and nothing like a podcast, like we were saying, to, to fill in the gaps, man. But I've been learning so much. Um, great to hear about the next layer on that, that pyramid that, that can be accomplished. I mean, I've spent so much time in that bottom layer of the pyramid, but to hear about the craziness that happens up top. So fun, so informative. I really appreciate you coming on here. Thank you, man. Yeah, likewise. And we could absolutely keep going for an hour. I've got a bunch of questions. I feel bad. I've just been talking about myself. Oh, yeah, no worries. I'll have you. You should come on, on our yeah, podcast. Yeah, I'd love to. Nice. Yeah, shout out the podcast. It's a three-minute podcast. Oh, three yeah, three-minute marketing. Yeah, I forgot to say that. So three-minute marketing. It's snackable, bite-sized little marketing insights from some of the uh, most badass marketers in the world. Check it out, webmechanics.com slash 3mm. Oh, I love that, 3mm. You know, I'll, I'll take some time. I'll have to figure out how to compress my long-form nature into three minutes, but I'm sure we'll figure it out. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we can go longer form too. Like, we could do a long-form thing, and then just I'll grab a really useful uh, segment of it for the, yeah, for totally. the official totally. episode. But we make all the, all the additional content is on uh, YouTube and on the website as well. Right. But, um, but sense. yeah, we should totally do that. Nothing quite like being on a podcast. I don't know if you looked at the clock, by the way, like a little bit of time is just warped by, but that that's what yeah. can happen. I mean, that's why I love podcasting. So yeah, it's just good stuff. Um, all right, Casey. Well, thank you yeah. very much, man. Absolutely, dude. And you know, and real quick before I let you go, I need to address everyone out there listening. And if you've learned something, and I freaking know you have, because I literally have two pages of notes over here, front and back, then share this episode with one other person, nine other people, 9,000 people, whatever the number, that's thought leadership, get it out there in front of people. 
And then again, Chris, thank you again for being on here. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening, everybody. All right, everybody. This has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time. 